and welcome back to Franklin Covey's On Leadership Series. My name is Scott Miller, and I'm honored each week to serve as your interviewer and host. Our guest today is the internationally acclaimed author, speaker, coach, and leadership expert, Dov Barron, whose book, Fiercely Loyal, How High-Performing Companies Develop and Retain Top Talent, is our guest today from Western Canada, where he is tonight, right now quarantining. Dov, welcome to On Leadership. Thank you so much, Scott. It's a pleasure and honor to be here with you and to serve you and your audience. Hey, Dov, we're honored to have you today. You are a well-known speaker, podcaster, author, leadership expert in the world. You've lived around the world. For those final few people who may not be as familiar with your contribution and writings as I am, would you take a minute or two and kind of reorient all of our listeners and viewers to kind of your path and how you've come to now have such a prominent and particular voice on the concept of authentic leadership. Thank you. Uh, yeah, I've been speaking for about 35 years around the world for major conferences, for organizations and such. Uh, background is in a weird and wonderful uh, mixed uh, that I started off studying actually metaphysical studies and um, then went from there into psychology, studied psychology and then started studying the psychology of excellence, which was peak performance, which today is called leadership. Then studied, became interested in quantum physics and neurobiology, and then put all that together into what I call, what my version of leadership, which is really about finding your dragon fire and becoming a dragon leader. And uh, that dragon fire is not your passion. It's not even what we think of as a why. It's much deeper than that. And when we tap into that, that's when powerful things happen in our businesses, in our culture, and certainly in our leadership. Dove, you also host a very popular uh, world subscribe to podcast like the one that we host here at Franklin Covey. Like us, you also have no shortage of guests on your program around the topic of leadership. What, mm -hmm. what attracted me to you and your book, particularly Fiercely Loyal, was this point of view you have around how leaders, how organizations can better build loyalty with their employees, including the new generation coming in to the workplace. Uh, as I have mentioned on this podcast previously, uh, I'm in my 25th year at the Franklin Covey Company. I'm 51 years old. I'm a dinosaur compared to most people's tenure. My father, who was still alive, spent 34 years with the Lockheed Martin Company, the defense contractor. So I'm guessing to some extent that was sort of ingrained in me. You write mm -hmm. in your book and you talk about how I think the average now is about four and a half years. And in fact, Whitney Johnson, who wrote the book um, Build an A-Team and Disrupt Yourself, says it's probably closer to three and a half years. W what have you learned? What have you uncovered around the new tenure of employees? Why has it changed so radically? Why is loyalty to organizations kind of obsolete now? Well, I, I don't think it is obsolete. I think Good. it's obsolete in the way that we've thought about it. So what I mean by that is, as you said, uh, careers now are just on four years, uh, 3.5 to, to four years for a career. Now, please, I need people to be aware, that's not a job, that's a career. The average tenure for a job is 1.2 to 1.5 years. So, you know, here's what you need to know, it's 1.5 to two times the annual salary of an individual for you to get your ROI. So a career is four years, meaning it's twice your ROI. That is really important for you to get because, as you just said, Scott, when we uh, entered the workforce, we were asked, what do you want to do? And that was a 20 to 40 year question for those of us who are a little older. For millennials, it's a four year question. And so you have to have them engaged. We know the engagement rate is very low 
and we have to keep them engaged for long enough for us to get that return on investment and have them become loyal to us. And more importantly, as we talk about infiercely loyal, not only become loyal to us, but if they have the impetus to move on, which they will, to have them become evangelical about us and about our organization so that they become the feeders into our talent pool. Dov, we're going to get into this idea of vulnerability, authenticity, and this phrase that you've coined, I think, called the chief uh, relationship officer, the CRO. Yes. Before yeah. we get there, I'd like to get practical. There, there's a sea change of a demographic shift happening in organizations, right? Uh, traditionalists and boomers, in many cases, moving on in droves and millennials, Gen X, Gen Y coming in. What advice would you give to the typical general leader manager, someone in their 40s, 50s, 60s perhaps, that are trying to transform the culture of their organization so that this idea of fierce loyalty works both ways. What does the traditional manager leader need to do differently to capture the passion and the heart and unleash the talent of this younger generation so that we do protract that job or career more for the benefit of both parties? It's a great question. and. And it's really not only a great question, it's an important question because the when looking at who we want to have in our organization, we have to understand that the world has changed and that what that means is that now the talent is interviewing you every bit as much as you're interviewing them. And if you want to have them become fiercely loyal, there are certain things that have to be there and that are th the things that are completely counterintuitive to those of us who are baby boomers. And the number one of those is vulnerability creates loyalty. Yeah. On top of that, trust. Trust comes from vulnerability, comes from reciprocal vulnerability. And moreover, most important of all, is your employees have to feel an emotional connection to you as the leader, to the organization, and more importantly, to the purpose of the organization. So all three of those have to be there. That only works if you have great communication, open communication, and you're willing to be vulnerable. And when I say vulnerability, that's often a confusion for people, particularly if you're a boomer, because we were trained that vulnerability is weakness. Vulnerability is not weakness, it is strength. However, you need emotional intelligence and self-knowledge for vulnerability because it's not about emotionally vomiting on your people. It's about being open and having discernment about what you're sharing and measuring that. So high levels of emotional intelligence and more importantly, high levels of self-knowledge because emotional intelligence on its own is often academic. Oh, this is how I can use this with others. When, when in fact, what you need to know is like, what is the truth with me? How am I tied to this organization? Why do I get up in the morning to do this? Because unified meaning is the single monolithic difference between average and spectacular organizations. A single monolithic meaning. It's unifying. It pulls everybody together. If we don't have that, our people will not stick. doesn't matter how great you pay them. doesn't matter how wonderfully established you are. If you don't have that, they're not staying with you. So, Dov, build on that for a moment. So the, the vast majority of mid to senior managers just by tenure are going to be in there, you know, late 30s, 40s, 50s, my age or such, even older. Sure. For those of us who were raised, like me, to believe that vulnerability was a weakness. By the way, I, I, um, I'm radically in alignment with you that vulnerability is a strength. We'll talk more about that. 
Yeah. What are some practical things that leaders my age and my range can do differently on Monday, tomorrow, back in their culture to convince their team that they love them, that they can relate to them, that they care about them? What are some, some, some differences in mindset and behavior people can do? So it's a great question, and I want to I want to start off by saying reminding you, as I said, it's it's about discernment. So again, it's not about just saying anything and everything and thinking that's vulnerability. And on the other side of it, it's not about faux vulnerability, meaning which is what we often see, which is uh, somebody thinking that this is the right thing to say to be vulnerable, but that's not vulnerability. Vulnerability actually has to have an emotional hit for you because it. Here's the thing, and I teach people how to be speakers. And one of the things we teach them is this. If you want them to hear it, you have to feel it. So if you're not feeling what you're saying, it doesn't have the emotional impact that you need to have. Now, again, talking to leaders who are Gen Gen X and and boomers Mm -hmm. is understanding this. If you want to think about a millennial. Now, by the way, millennials are now 40 years old as we record this in 2020. Millennials at their oldest are 40 years old. They're not kids. We tend to think of them that way. Right. Many of them are already in leadership positions. They they were in middle school or high school or just in the beginning of work when the financial crisis happened. And they saw their parents who'd given 20, 30, 40 years to an organization suddenly get thrown out to the curb. They don't trust big business. So if you're not coming at it from meaning, you're not coming at it from vulnerability. There's no reason for them to stay. So, but here's the thing, it has to be reciprocal and it has to be measured. So if you are getting on a call, a Zoom call with one of your team or you're meeting with your team, how about you just spend five minutes just saying, tell me something that's difficult for you that you're going through that's got nothing to do with work and how can I help? Just starting with that level of actually caring and being compassionate is vitally important. Most people simply want to be heard. And we want to, as leaders, particularly as A-types, we want to jump in with a solution. No, no. Remember, most people just want to be heard. So can you listen? Active listening is one of the most powerful skills a leader will ever learn and most leaders desperately lack. I feel like I'm listening to Dr. Stephen R. Covey, but with a slightly British accent. That's a compliment to you because much <laughs> of what you just said in the last three or four minutes was what Dr. Covey, our co-founder, dedicated you know, 60 years of his life to teaching around the world. Dov, the book is extraordinarily practical, this idea of yes. fiercely loyal. You talk a lot about the, um, the stages of relationships between leaders and their employees. And one of them really struck me right in the temple. Because you talk about there, there comes a time in almost every leader's professional role where they fall in love with a new hire, right? The new hire can do no wrong. They bring them in the organization. And then rather quickly, they sour on them. And they can't wait until this person leaves on their own or they can get rid of the person. And I re- I've related to this because in my my career here, I've you know hired hundreds of people. I've had the sure. unfortunate responsibility of terminating dozens of people. But one person in particular earlier in my career mapped exactly this way. This person was like, you know, gonna save the firm, they were gonna save the division. 
I brought them in with great fanfare, and fairly quickly, I soured on them. Yep. And I've up until recently thought a lot of that was their responsibility and not mine. Mm -hmm. But your point was, is the problem is, as a leader, we pin our hopes, our expectations on them often, and they often can't meet that. For those leaders like me that have found themselves or are finding themselves in that same situation, what advice would you give us to change our mindset and work through that, that kind of cycle that can repeat itself? Yeah, we do go through that cycle, and you're, you're right. It is very common. Um, and as I point out in the book, it's not limited to work. It's, it's, it's human beings. It's how we do relationships. And the first phase of relationship is called the romantic phase. It's the illusionary phase. This person you hired who is amazing and the best thing since sliced bread. And when we do that, there is somewhat of a hero mentality that we put on that person. And when we put on that, we, we often will put unrealistic expectations on them and we attach our ego to those expectations. And what that means is then other people start seeing them that way that person actually feels so much pressure often that they cannot produce at that level. It's, it, it's overbearing. So <clears throat> the thing is to understand, I want you to think about your best friend, I want you to think about your, your partner in life, um, even your children. So the, anal the analogy I give in the book is when your child was born, you fell in love with them. Why would you fall in love with your child? I mean, think about it logically, not emotionally, but logically. Here, think about it. This, this new creature keeps you awake all night, doesn't let you sleep properly, poops in its pants, expects you to clean it up, and never communicates with you in any other way than screaming most of the time. Why are you in love with this creature? Right? But you do. You fall in love. And then something happens about 18 months, two years later, and your child reaches what's called the terrible twos. And that child suddenly realizes, oh, I'm not you, and I'm saying no. Well, I want you to think about all relationships in that model because that is how we work. We fall in love with the initial hire. We, we see them as perfect and marvelous and we can't see any wrong in them. And then we start seeing the reality of what it is, that they're not us and they have their own opinion. So the main thing to do up front, up front with a hire is back to what I said before, which is to clearly communicate what is our single unified meaning of this organization? What is the driving force of this organization? What is it that matters more than anything? What are the maxims that we build, that we hold all that together with it? So the, this unified meaning is the foundation. We build the maxims, the values into that. And when we put that in place, we build a culture around that. So there's nothing nebulous about it. This is who we are. This is what we believe. And the culture is around that. And oftentimes it falls apart because we have a perception of what our culture is, but it's not what the culture is. So uh, the analogy I give is if I'm brought into a company, which we are, um, and I'll say, well, tell me about your culture. And they'll hand me a brochure. And I'll say, what's this? And they go, this is our culture. No, this is a brochure. No, no, but it outlines our culture. No, it doesn't. What do you mean it doesn't? It does. I guarantee you it doesn't because your culture is not what's in this brochure. Your culture is what's happening when you're not looking. Your culture is permission. So when you go into the interview and say, be here at nine o'clock, and then the next day you get there at nine and the person you, you um, 
you report to says, yeah, it's okay. You know, five after nine is fine. That's the real culture. So very often, if we don't really nail down this one unified meaning, it becomes something that is written on the wall as a mission statement or a purpose statement, but actually is not a truth because we're not emotionally connected to it. If there's not a deep emotional connection, those people will go away. And oftentimes when you've hired somebody spectacular, you've put them in the meaning, they haven't. And that's where the trap is. So you've got to elicit from them what their meaning is of your meaning. Dov, so well said. For the record, I have three of those pooping, peeing, greedy little things in my life, and I fall both in and out of love with them. Right now, I am temporarily out of love with the current um, youngest one. So wish me luck um, finding the back in love. Uh, yeah. Dov, in your book, you had this great quote where you say, fear of conflict is the root of resentment. I think it's one of the best quotes in the book. Thank you. Uh, riff on that, expand on that, and... and transfer to our listeners and viewers some knowledge on how that can impact or change perhaps how they're leading? Uh, well, I will put it this way in that my, my guess is that you, you, as in the viewer listener, want to be a decent person. You are a decent person. Um, but do not ever mix up kindness with being nice. There's a vast difference. So kindness is I want to be kind to you, I want to treat you well, I want to have respect for you, I want, I want to always look out for you and, and have you know that I'm your champion and I'm going to be there for you. Being nice is avoiding conflict. And nice guys, and I can say this with complete uh, vulnerability, nice guys, which I used to be, are a-holes because it's manipulative. It's not direct, it's not clear communication, and it's certainly not kind. So it, what I'm talking about is, is true, real honesty, but with compassion, with caring. And so what happens is when we're avoiding conflict, which let's face it, there isn't too many of us who like conflict. I'm very good at conflict, but I don't like it. So let's be clear about that. But I understand if I'm going to lead, I must embrace conflict. And I want you to think about this just to have you really grasp this for a moment. I want you to imagine on this side of you is somebody you've known for about five years who is a truly fiercely loyal friend, best friend. On this side is an acquaintance that you've known for about the same amount of time. So let's pick a random number, say three to five years. One side is a best friend, truly fiercely loyal. The other side is an acquaintance. And I say to you, what's the difference between those two people? You might think about it and you might go, well, time. And I go, no, that you've known them the same amount of time. Okay. Uh, well, they know me better. Yeah, that's a generalized answer. Okay. How do they know you better? And the answer is vulnerability. The person who is your loyal, fiercely loyal, trusted friend is somebody you have had reciprocal vulnerability with. What is reciprocal vulnerability? It's obviously where I share with you and you share with me. What gets us to that? Conflict. Conflict is what gets us to that. If, you, if you're married, if you're in a long-term relationship of any kind, even with a best friend, you know that the person you have the deepest relationships with are the people you've been the most vulnerable with. And that means you've likely hit the wall with each other. You've gotten into a deep conflict and you reveal to each other what you need to reveal. 
you have spoken things that has deepened the relationship because you didn't agree, you were willing to explore because you cared and wanted to understand at a deeper level. Nice guys are a-holes, but kind leaders are deeply connected, deeply compassionate, deeply caring, but deeply courageous in willing to address the conflict. Dov, vulnerability is a common thread throughout your book. In fact, you share a couple of pages in sort of in tribute to and expand on Brene Brown, of course, the author and TED Talk um, uh, phenom we know from Dare to Lead and many other books. Yes. It's, a, it's a very popular word right now. I speak about it a lot in terms of being a leadership competency. Uh, get practical. What does vulnerability sound like, look like, feel like in a work environment from a, from a leader to a team member? So let's take, for instance, the situation we find ourselves in as we record this, which is isolation and um, quarantine, et cetera, uh, shelter at home. So I'm a leader. I've got 10 people I'm, a, I, I'm work, working with directly. I will pick up, uh, you know, when, when all this happened, many of the leaders reached out to me and said, what's the first thing I do? And I said, be a leader. And they go, what do you mean? Leadership is by example. Okay, if you lead people who lead people, you must lead by example. I want you to get on Zoom. I want you to get on a call. I want you to reach out to every single person and say, this is not a business call. I want to check in and see how you're doing. Because here's the thing, and this is for us to remember whether we're in quarantine or whether we're in the office together. Everybody is fighting a battle. Doesn't matter who it is. There are battles going on inside everybody's life that you don't know that you're not aware of. And you mm -hmm. might tell yourself you don't have time. You're not, you know, you don't get, I get it. I understand that but you need to take five minutes to check in with your team, each of them at least once a week, and just say, how you doing? What's going on? Because they may be trying to homeschool while trying to be productive. They may be taking care of an infirmed um, family member while trying to do the, the meetings. You know, we all laughed a few years ago when there was a guy on the, who was being interviewed on the BBC because he was an economics expert, I think he was, and his kids came into right. the room, right. a little kid, ah, ah, ah. Right. and then the nanny comes in and drags them out. And it was funny, but that is what we're all living with today right. uh, through COVID isolation. And in many ways, as, as many of your team become remote, that's going to become more and more and more for all of us. So you have to start by being curious. Curiosity, as you know, is a big theme for me. I sign off everything I do with, be, stay curious, my friend, stay curious. Curiosity is what allows us to step into vulnerability. It's what allows us to be connected to other people. So you start your vulnerability with, which is difficult for some leaders, with the vulnerability, the willingness to take it out of business and take it onto a personal level. Now, that doesn't mean you're turning yourself into the therapist for that person. Please don't do that. You're not qualified for that. But it may mean that you say, you know what, this is outside of my uh, purview and I would love to assist you. Can I connect you with Sally or can I connect you with a resource or John or whoever it is who can handle that? I want to be here for you, but within the realm of what's capable. But you must then be reciprocal. So it would go like this. You know, I, I really hear you, uh, John, you, you're struggling with this. You, 
you're homeschooling your kids and you're trying to be productive. You know, I get it. I've got a little kid and this is going on or, you know, my mom is over there and she's not well and I can't get to her. You know, this is a stress for us and we understand that. People have to know that you care enough about them to share who you are. And again, it doesn't have to be about emotional vomit. It just has to be about sharing with discernment reciprocally, one, two, backwards and forwards. And you pay attention to what you're getting back. When you pay attention to what you're getting back, that actually, again, that awareness tells you how much further to go. You said something quick there, but I think it's profound. A few minutes ago, you said, pick up the phone for five minutes and check in with them. You said, Dov, deliberately check in, not check on. Yes. And I think that that's a mindset. That's a belief system, right? You hear a lot about leaders right now that are worried about, are there people productive? Are they working from home during quarantine? What you're really advocating is that leaders do enter that with a mindset of, I am checking in with them. I'm not checking on with them. Any advice to the leader who is maybe suffering from real or imagined concern about the productivity of now their quarantine stay-at-home workforce? Uh, yeah, I have a couple things to say to that. First of all, um, if you're worried about whether your uh, quarantined people are being productive, here's what you need to know. This is stats, not my opinion. So the stats are that, um, first of all, what is clear is that quarantine has pushed us into a future we were resisting and that is remote work. Remote work has been available for a long time. And, and many of us said, oh, I, you know, I can't work remotely or I couldn't have my team work remotely. And you're discovering, well, you have to. Oh, look, we can do it. So that's the first thing. The next thing for you to know, again, is the stat. And that is this, that remote workers on average are about 20% more productive than people who are in office. Because when you're in the office, there is this presumption that somebody's looking over your shoulder and you may not be in the flow. So if you look at um, even Dan Pink's work around when, you start looking at what your most productive times are and you start paying attention right. to that, you realize, oh my goodness, I am absolutely terrible between 1 and 3 p.m. or between 9 and 11 p.m. Because people have different chrono clocks. We work differently. And so if you would rather work with, at 10 p.m. when the kids are in bed and you actually have great energy at that time, I actually don't care. It's not about time. It's about what you produce. So here's the thing. One of the things you can do around uh, stepping into vulnerability and connecting with your people at a deeper level is to say, hey, Susan, Bob, whoever it is, when do you think you're most productive? Like, you know, if you take your waking hours, when are you at your best? See, I know that I'm at my best first thing in the morning and very late at night. And that mid-afternoon for me when I'm, if I have to write, it's not a good time for me to write. It doesn't work for me to write at that time. I can do other things, but I can't do that. I know when I'm strongest. And the truth of the matter is that when most people actually stop and pay attention, they can work that out pretty quick. So when you say to one of your people, hey, when do you think you're most productive? Like, when do you feel like you are in that zone that you produce the best? They might say, I don't know. But the fact that you've asked that question, A, has opened that door. And B, is give them the, the catalyst for them to start paying attention. Go, you know what? 
That was a great question. I am actually terrible between one and three. I have no no energy. I go take a cup of coffee or whatever it is, but I know I'm kind of dragging my feet for a while. Oh, okay. So they start to learn that. And when you get outside of the constraints of a normal workday and you instead play into people's um, energy strengths and, and psychological strength of time, you actually get more production done. We know disengagement is in its high 70s. Well, that, that whole movement started 10 years before when we found out that disengagement was at 70%. It went up to 74% in the 10 years and we spent close to a trillion dollars in trying to fix it. It hasn't gotten any better because we're not doing what we need to do, which is getting people emotionally engaged. That is what engagement is. If I'm engaged with the company, if I'm engaged with the work, it's because I'm emotionally engaged and leaders have been trained away from going to emotions like, ooh, that's the soft stuff. Here's what you need to know. Soft skills are the new hard bottom line. If you don't have them as a leader, you need to get them as a leader. Covey's work was all about that. It was about those, the power of those soft skills. But now it's requiring you to have deeper levels with that, to step into that and be vulnerable and share what is the one unified meaning that is going to pull everybody together emotionally and connect them to why we're doing what we're doing and why it matters. What is the, what is the healing we're trying to create in the world? What is the difference we want to make in the world? Yes, we want to make profit, but we want to make a difference more than that. Dov, I feel like this is a bit of a Nostradamus moment because you've just kind of laid the gauntlet down on what the future of work and leadership is going to look like, right? Franklin Covey, the same thing. We're finding that everybody who's working at home, for the most part, can. Perhaps we need a smaller footprint. My brother in Florida works for a major uh, automobile importer. They were building a multi million dollar, multi hundred thousand square foot facility, they have stopped. They've stopped building it, not because of COVID, partially because of COVID, because they realize, I'm not sure we need this. Your points right. about Dan Pink's work and when, I think are prophetic. This idea of your, your peaks, your troughs, your recoveries is so important for leaders to know, not just their own sort of energy flow, but also of their team members, right? My, my, my peak work is 4 a.m., to about 9 or 10 a.m. I get up there about 3.30. This morning I had a 5 a.m. to 9.30 conference call. And we were, at, we were jamming, we were in our groove. It worked for everyone. I won't voice that on those that can't do that, but I think that last few minutes is so profound in terms of what the future is gonna look like for a significant swath of the world's workforce and economy. Number, leaders are going to have to be more intellectually, physically, emotionally, mentally nimble and, and have a greater sense of self-awareness, right? And how, that's, how, how this works for their team members as well. Our, our time is tight. I wanna have you talk about this idea of CRO. You know, I was kind of raised to believe that the CRO is the chief um, salesperson, right? Chief revenue officer. You hear it a lot, but you kind of redefine the idea of a CRO. Send us off with some advice on how leaders should become their organization's CRO. Yeah, so CRO stands for Chief Relationship Officer. And what I said in the book is, you can certainly make somebody a CRO. Um, and the example of that actually is uh, Claude Silva, who is the Chief Heart Officer for the uh, VaynerMedia. Uh, she's done a fantastic job of that. And she's really a CRO. Now, what is a CRO? 
the chief relationship officer is the person who becomes uh, what we call the corporate cultural concierge. Um, this is a person who understands the culture and is always doing everything they can to keep the culture alive. And a lot of that is through relationship. So it's the willingness to constantly have conversations that are taking care of your people. I wrote about in, in the book, Fiercely Loyal there, that one of the most undervalued uh, seats at the C-suite table that will become one of the most valuable seats at the table is that of human resources. At the present time, human resources used to be human resources. And I would argue now that human resources has become a buffer between the workforce and legal, meaning you know, we don't want to get into any legal trouble. So this is what we have to do. That is not what it's supposed to be about. It, you need to be chief relationship officers. You need to pay attention to your people. And that is not just a job of a single individual or even of the HR department. It is the responsibility of all of us who have any form of leadership. And that is relationships communicated around this single unified, unified monolithic meaning, conversations around that, how that plays out, what it means to that person, outside of the office, outside of work, all of those things coming to that brings people together in such an amazing, powerful way. So for instance, when I go in and work with an executive team, I will, you know, we do this work around helping them to find the dragon fire that, that really fuels that company to bring that unified meaning together and then to build a culture upon it. Yeah, we do all that. But one of the things I'll say to them is, if this doesn't improve your marriage, if this doesn't improve your parenting, I've not done my job. Yeah. Because here's the thing, as a baby boomer, we were taught that you have this work self and, and home self. You don't. Either way, it's you. You're going there. And if you might be putting on the work hat, and there may be certain things that you wouldn't discuss at work that you would at home. I understand that. Again, discernment. But the truth of the matter is, it's you who you are at a soulful level that you're bringing to that. And if you can't bring that, get out, leave, go somewhere else where you can. Because one of the things a great leader has got to do is, and a CRO has got to do is you've got to find out if you've got the right, you know, again, old term, but you've got the right people on the bus, but you've also got to not be afraid to let them go. And that's not firing them. That's having them recognize we don't have what you need and we want to support you being in the right place that really lights your heart, your soul on fire. So your dragon fire is blazing so that you're breathing fire onto the lies that stop you from bringing what it is, your magnificence to the world. Because I believe there is magnificence within all of us. And oftentimes leadership has stifled that rather than giving us a doorway to it, bringing it into our company and bringing it to our clients and bringing it to our teams. Amen. This is my favorite interview of the entire series. I love listening to you. Dov, you, you have built this remarkable skill to articulate your point of view, your passion, your presence, your connectedness. You teach this. Talk a bit about how people can, when the world comes back to some normalcy, how someone <laughs> can hire you to help coach them on their own presence, speaking um, uh, uh, abilities and such. Sure, we do it in several ways. As I said, I work with companies and organizations in helping them to find their dragon fire um, and work with the executive teams and the companies to do that. But we also work with the executives 
because here's the thing, you know, right now you've got this amazing podcast, amazing show. It's very powerful. And we know how useful this is. This is new media. If you're a leader, you have to actually learn how to build a brand based around what, how you can speak about your dragon fire and how you bring that to the world. So we have what's called the Authentic Speaker Academy for Leadership. And what it is, is how to bring your leadership and your voice together so that you can share that. And we have a, a, a powerful model for that that allows you to share at a deep level of vulnerability that connects you to the audience in a way. So whether that audience is like this on a podcast or whether the audience is on a stage, because as you know, I've been speaking for 35 years around the world. So uh, whether it's on that stage, you can reach out to me and we'll, we'll train you. We do trainings for that. I do private trainings and I do small private group uh, trainings. My email is dov at dovbaron. I know I'm crazy. D-O-V at D-O-V-B-A-R-O-N.com. You can write to me personally. And I actually encourage you to do that, even if, even if it's not to hire me, because I would love to know, and I would love you to let Scott know what you got out of this. And more importantly, what are you going to do with it? Because that's what matters. Information is worth the hole in the donut. Transformation comes from application of the information. So what are you going to do with this? And write to me, write to Scott, write to, write to the company. Share with us what you got out of it, what you're going to do with it. And if there's some way I can assist you, some way I can serve you, that's why I'm on the planet. And if you want to really learn how to articulate your message about your organization, about yourself, and about your inner meaning and, and your dragon fire so that you can really create fierce loyalty and bond not only your own people to you, but to everybody you interact with and that you can have your people become evangelical for your organization and for the meaning of your organization, reach out. I'm happy to serve. Dov, thank you for that. Let's end with this other One Red Thread um, reference. In addition to the other books you've written, you've uh, published what I would call a monograph in the uh, publishing industry. It's kind of like a mini book, uh, yep. about 35 pages, called One Red Thread, Discovering the Purpose Already Woven Into Your Life. Talk a bit about the concept of this and send people off with a little bit of um, interest around this. So in the front of the book, I tell a story that you walk into a, an art gallery and over on the side there, you see this magnificent, beautiful tapestry. And as you, it's kind of weird because it, it's incredibly complex and, and on the surface of it, quite simple. And you walk over and you're in awe of its magnificence and its beauty. And you look down at the little tag at the bottom and the tag at the bottom says, uh, the name of this piece is One Red Thread. And it explains that the entire tapestry is woven together by a single wet red thread but you don't see it it's always on the back and occasionally only comes through to the front and the the tag says what is the one red thread of your life and so the book asks you to take a look at what might be the one red thread of your life what is this theme that runs through every area of your life so most people of course don't know what that is and they think it's a passion but it's not and what i want to say to you as we talk about in that book is passion, yeah, it tends to be joyous. But your, your dragon fire, that what attaches to the one red thread, is usually found in your pain. That's where we don't want to look. But if you look into that, you'll find the reason you came to the planet. And you have all kinds of ways of getting to serve that. So you may be doing it through your leadership. You may be doing it through your hobbies. You may be doing it through your... Um, philanthropic work there's all kinds of ways of doing it 
But what I would like you to do is to consider this. What is the thing when you look out in the world, what is the thing that you wish you could wave the magic wand and fix? What is the thing that you've, not today, so it's not like you might be saying, well, I'm really frustrated with the president or I'm really frustrated with Congress. Or, you know, that's, that's contemporary. What is something that's bothered you for as long as you can remember that you wish someone would fix? That's the key to one part of finding your one red thread, to tapping into your dragon fire. Because I would put it to you that you did not get your dreams you did not get your aspirations by mistake, that they are your heart and soul crying out for expression, that you are here to serve a far greater good than a job, J-O-B. That's just not the goal. You're here to serve something magnificent within your soul that can make a change in the world. And you can use the vehicle of leadership. You can use the vehicle of your business. You can use the vehicle of the, of the job you're in but it's that bringing that forward to serve in the world that makes all the difference in the world and will get you out of bed no matter what is going on, no matter what, whether it's raining or snowing or sunshine or whether you're isolated at home or whatever it is. When you tap into that, it doesn't matter what's going on. It doesn't matter what position you find yourself in. You realize that every word out of your mouth is driven by that. Every action you take is driven by your dragon fire. If there is anybody left out there that thinks you can't have a keynote speech be virtual that inspires you and invigorates you, they are wrong because you just <laughs> did that. Dove Baron, thank you for joining us today. Best of success. When the world comes back to normal, stay safe. Hope your family is well. It was tough getting you on because you're in such massive demand, but we are honored that you gave us your time today. We wish you well. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Scott. It's been an honor and a pleasure to be here with all of you. I'm sincerely grateful. Stay curious, my friends. Stay curious. Hey, thanks for joining us. This is, uh, this is my, my, my favorite so far. <laughs> I say that a lot, but this one was so invigorating. It's probably what I needed to hear at this point in my life, and I hope it had the same impact on you. If you're not subscribing to Franklin Covey's On Leadership series, do that by visiting franklincovey.com. Click on the On Leadership tab. Sign up. comes out every Tuesday via email in a newsletter. It also includes one of our downloadable tools as well as a blog written by me about an insight in the interview. You can watch this. You can also listen to it on all of your favorite podcast channels, SoundCloud, Stitcher, iTunes, you name it. Rate us and review us, and we'll see you back here next week for a new conversation on leadership.